You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join Pastor Ryan now. Luke chapter 7. I trust that this study, this series in the Gospel of Luke has been uh, challenging to you. It has been to me as I prepare and study these passages. And I hope that it's more than just challenging. I hope that it's changing. Not just challenging you, but changing you. And there is a big difference, isn't there? Because I'm often challenged um, to do something about, you know, the two or three pounds that I need to lose. And, okay, maybe it's five, but, you know, I did lose nine pounds. I'll have you know I've probably gained eight of it back, but I'm, I'm just sticking with that number for now. Because it sounds good, and because the scale did tell me that at one point. I just haven't weighed myself in a while, but I did lose nine pounds. And, but it, it's not just enough to be challenged. You, you can be challenged uh, to fix your house up. Every time you drive up, you think, oh man, the paint's falling off. The, the landscaping looks horrible. i got to do something about this. I'm, I'm challenged, but you don't do anything. You never do anything, and it just continues to get worse. The, the, the challenging part is good, but it's until you change it that you actually receive more equity in your home and that it looks pretty when people drive up and that, act, that something's actually changing. And so I hope that you're being more than just challenged, but that it's hitting you to the very core of who you are and that when you leave here, you're leaving here desiring to be somebody different than who you were. And that God's word is transforming you and changing you and making you more like him. Because like we've said many times, that if this, if this service, if, if this medium is what defines your Christianity, you're absolutely wasting your time. You're absolutely wasting your time. You'd be better off to stay home. If this is what's defining you, if this is the end of all for you and Jesus, then you're wasting your time. This has to be simply a catalyst. This is a, a time to get together corporately with other believers, but our worship doesn't end here and shouldn't be characterized only by this. It's what we do when we leave this place that truly defines who we are and who Christ is in us. And so this morning we're going to look at Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 50. We're going to finish out the chapter. And in our text this morning, I want to answer a simple question and yet a question that's very profound. A simple question and yet one that is pregnant with truth. And the question is, who is Jesus? And we're not going to examine every facet of who Jesus is because, number one, that's impossible. And number two, we don't have the time. But we are going to see how he primarily reveals himself to us. And the theme verse of the Gospel of Luke is up there on the screen. It says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's what Jesus came to do. To seek you, to find you, so that you could relate with him. God, who created the entire universe stepped out of that, became a man so that he could have relationship with you, so that you could relate with him, so that he could reveal himself to you. 
And one of the main purposes for the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one of the main purposes is to bring clarity to the question, who is Jesus? Every one of those guys, inspired by the Spirit, when they sat down to write their Gospel account, the overarching idea to it was to present to you and I, the reader, who is Jesus? And each one of them gives a little different glimpse from a different perspective. And if I were to ask you the question, who is Jesus? What would your response be? Many people have answers to that. Well, he was a great teacher. Well, yeah, that's true. There's never been a more amazing communicator than Jesus. No question. But he's more than that. Some would say he's a prophet. Well, yeah, that's true. We saw that in our text last week. The woman at the well. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Well, duh. But he's more than that. He's way more than that. Well, he's an example. That's a big one today. Jesus is an example. He's a moral template. Yeah? But he's way, way more than that. And when Jesus just becomes an example, I absolutely gut him of the power to do anything in my life. If he's just... A nice example. My dog's an example. My dog's an example of unconditional love. He's not God. So Jesus is far more than an example. But who is Jesus to you? Who, who is he? What does your life say that he is? What does your speech say that he is? What does your worship say that he is? What does your Bible reading and your understanding of God's word say that he is? John the Baptist asked this question in verses 19 and 20. And then in verse 49, we see those who witnessed Jesus' interaction with a woman. A woman who very possibly was a prostitute. Those that interact in that house there with Jesus and see the the whole scene, they ask, who is this who even forgives sins? And so that's a question that is at the very heart of this text. And we have two different scenes in our passage that each reveal who Jesus is. In scene 1, verses 18 to 35, the the scene is John the Baptist sending some of his disciples, a deputation of his disciples, to ask, who is this Jesus? Are you the one that we were expecting? And we learn in that section that Jesus is the fulfillment of, of God's plan of redemption. The second scene is I described is in a house of a Pharisee, Simon by name, and a woman comes into that home, more than likely a prostitute. She offers Jesus an amazing act of worship. And in that scene, we learn something else about Jesus, that Jesus is the Redeemer, our Redeemer. Not only does he fulfill God's plan of redemption, which is amazing and phenomenal, but it's not quite personal. But then in that particular section, we see that Jesus is also personally my Redeemer. And so let's look at verses 18 to 35 and see this scene that is set and learn that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. It says, then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And you remember that John's disciples were were now beginning to become Jesus' disciples. That John was sending his men to Jesus. And 
John's now in prison, so it kind of makes sense. But even before that, John was trying to get his disciples to follow him less and follow Jesus more. That was the whole point. And so they're beginning to do that, and they've been hanging out with Jesus. They've been seeing the amazing things he's doing. They go back and they report to John. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? There's a couple things about this that I think are amazing. First of all, is that we see with John the Baptist that he experienced doubt. And I think that the church has done a really poor job of embracing doubt amongst Christians. We've done a really poor job of that. We don't want to talk about doubt. We don't want to embrace the fact that we all struggle with it. And I know you do because I do. And here's John the Baptist, a man who was fashioned and formed by God for a purpose. One purpose, to point people to Jesus. In fact, in his mother's womb, he leapt for joy at the presence of Jesus. This guy had dedicated his entire life to pointing people to Jesus. But I think that he's beginning to doubt because his expectations are not being met. He's now in a prison. It won't be long from now that his life will end as his head is removed from his body. John knows that things are not looking good. And I think that he realizes, he's beginning to recognize that the expectations he had for Jesus are not coming to pass. You see, most of the followers of Jesus, including all of his disciples, which is why they fled like rabbits when things got tough, most of them felt like and believed that Jesus was going to set up his kingdom right then and right now. That was the expectation because they didn't have a a complete revelation. And so they didn't quite understand. And John the Baptist is right there with him. He doesn't quite understand what's happening. Here he is in prison about to give his life, and he's beginning to doubt. And rather than denying that he doubts, he just comes out with it. You know what? I think there's a lot that we can learn in that. Because we all have doubt. And rather than hiding it or pretending like we don't or being ashamed of it, we ought to just be able to to tell one another, you know what? I'm just doubting. I'm doubting whether this book is really real that I've based my whole life on. And we've all had those feelings. We've all had those doubts. And I need prayer. I need you to, to, to help me. I'm just going through a time where there's just a cloud of doubt around me. I'm, I'm doubting whether or not God really exists. And if you say you've never had those doubts, you are lying. Because I know we all have them. We've all been there. And maybe it's because of your circumstances. And circumstances of your life have been so difficult and so hard for so long that you're beginning to wonder, does God even exist? Because why am I suffering so much? Why am I going through so many difficulties and so many hard times? And that's okay. Now, I would say to you, and I would encourage you, move through that and pray and ask God to break that cloud of darkness but in that time don't be ashamed don't hide it just ask people to to come alongside you 
And, and as the body of Christ, we should never look down upon those that are struggling with doubt. We should never pretend that we've got it all together. And I love that Jesus doesn't really answer the question. That Jesus takes what they ask and, and basically just begins to prove it to them. It says, the men came to him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Hey, John the Baptist wants to know, are you the real deal? Because his expectations of who you are and what you were going to do, not quite being met. Just like you have expectations of God. When you asked Jesus to be the Lord of your life, you had certain expectations and God has probably been slowly but surely removing those expectations. But we always have expectations. You had expectations when you came here this morning. And so if I had gotten up here and said, you know what, this morning we're going to watch Anne of Green Gables. And then we just went home, you would probably think, wow, that was weird. Or if we had just stood in a circle, held hands, sang kumbaya, and then I said, have a great week. You would think, wow, that was strange. You had expectations when you came here. You have expectations for just about everything. That's why when I do premarital counseling, one of my favorite things is to find out, what are your expectations for marriage? It's hilarious. Absolutely hilarious. Because by the time they get done, it's like, okay, so you want to marry um, Jesus, and you want to marry the Holy Spirit. Um, Yeah, ain't happening. Because you're marrying a sinner, okay? Look at him. He's a sinner. Look at her. She's a sinner to her core, okay? Got it? Okay, let's, let's lower the expectations. But we all have expectations. We have expectations of God. And when they're not met, we begin to doubt. And these men said, hey, are you the real deal or What? And it says in verse 21, At that very hour he cured many of infirmities, if afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. And so Jesus doesn't really answer their question, which, by the way, Jesus was the master of. We could learn from that. Answering questions with another question. It's phenomenal. Especially if you don't know the answer to the question. But Jesus did... But he, he was just the master of kind of putting it off, putting it on them. What do you think? And he goes about healing people, casting out demons, giving sight to the blind, right in front of them. Like, I don't know, I don't know who was there, but apparently there's a bunch of blind, demon-possessed, sick people. And Jesus just like, dude, here you go. And then they were like, wow, this is unreal. But I don't understand because he's already been doing that before. But that's what doubt does. I mean, you're 40 years old. And God's been faithful your entire life. And has just blessed you and provided for you. And, and never done anything but amazing things. And then you lose your job. And all of a sudden, everything that's ever happened is gone. And that's kind of what was happening here. But what I love, first thing that we noticed is that John the Baptist just embraces his doubt. Another thing I love is that Jesus doesn't really come down on them. He doesn't say, did you honestly come all the way over here to ask me that question? 
Seriously? Yeah, I just raised a dude from the dead yesterday. Uh, Before that, I healed the centurion's son, and I wasn't even there. Should I go on? How about I heal a couple of these guys that are standing around? They don't even need to be healed, but I'm going to heal them. He doesn't do that. He doesn't get irritated or frustrated. Many of the things that we would have become, like, what more do I need to do? Then Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. I love this. They leave. This this would have been the perfect opportunity to go, What group of idiots does John have hanging around with him? Who is that guy? Can you believe that? He doubted me. What does he do? He begins to validate and to substantiate John's ministry. That ought to encourage you. Because as the the devil is throwing accusations at you, as the devil is wanting to make you look bad, Jesus is just like, you know what? I love him. Jesus is saying, you know what? She's cool. I got her covered. Jesus answered after they had departed, began to speak. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Did you go out to see a pansy? Did you go out to see some dude who is not, doesn't even look like a man? Is that the kind of guy you went to see? No, you didn't go out to see a wuss. Did you go out to see a man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. And yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. So Jesus said, look, you didn't go out to see some wuss of a dude. You went out to see a stud. And that's what he is. That's what Jesus is saying to them. This is he of whom it is written in Malachi... Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. I mean, that is an amazing statement for Jesus to make about somebody. How would you like Jesus to say that about you? Here's a guy that's doubting, that sends people to ask Jesus if he's really the one they ought to be looking for when he knows full well he is. And I think if any of us were in that situation, we would have been ripping into John. But what does Jesus do? He just totally builds him up. He affirms him. What did you go out to see? Did you go out to see some guy who's afraid to die, whose expectations were not being met? No, that's not John. You went out to see a guy who is strong. A dude that wore camel skin, ate locusts dipped in honey, told Pharisees to repent, called him a brood of vipers. You went out to see a stud, a man's man, a guy with a strong backbone who said what he meant and meant what he said. That's the kind of guy you went out to see. And and you can just picture the crowd. They're like, yeah, yeah, he's awesome. He's cool. And then he quotes prophecy. And then he says, he's the greatest prophet that's ever been born. Now, that's a statement. Greater than Elijah? Greater than Elisha? Greater than Isaiah? Greater than Jeremiah? That's an amazing statement to make. But then he makes an even more profound statement. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What does that mean? He that is least in the kingdom is greater than the greatest of the prophets. And it all comes back to the 
overarching theme of this particular section showing us who Jesus is, that is that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. And so you and I have a privilege that John the Baptist didn't have. Yes, he was a powerful prophet. Yes, he was a stud. Yes, he was mightily used by God. Yes, he prepared the way for Jesus. But you have an opportunity to have a more robust and more amazing and phenomenal ministry than John the Baptist because you have the complete revelation that he didn't have. You understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. They're like, yeah, we're, we're cool with John. We were baptized by him. We know what's up. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Of course they didn't. They, they didn't think they needed that. They didn't need to repent. And the Lord said, to what then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? And basically what he says is they're like spoiled brats. They don't know what they want. They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. So we wanted to party, you didn't party. We mourned to you and you did not weep. We wanted to mourn, you didn't want to mourn. Can't make you happy. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And you say, he has a demon. There's something wrong with that guy. Guy's too strict. He's weird. He's living out in the boonies, eating bugs. But the son of man, I came eating and drinking, which I love about Jesus. Likes good food, likes to have a good time. And you say, look, a glutton. So it wasn't only you that gets called that. Jesus got called a glutton also. Look, a glutton and a wine bibber. Have you ever thought about that, that Jesus was accused of being a drunk? Just think about that for a second. A glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children. And basically what Jesus is saying is, we can't make you happy. You didn't like John the Baptist. He was too strict. He was weird. You don't like me. I hang out with sinners. I eat too much. I drink wine. The entire section about John the Baptist is to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. That he is the one to come. They don't need to look for another. Jesus fulfills God's plan. And because you know that, or at least have opportunity to know that, you have the potential to be an amazingly used prophet of God, pointing people to Jesus in a way that John the Baptist never could. Because, see, all they had was the Old Testament. And they saw it through a mere dimly. And some of it they understood, and a lot of it they didn't. But now we have the completed revelation with the New Testament and with Jesus being the fulfillment of all of it. But see what too many people do? They say, well, yeah, we don't need the old anymore. Let's throw that away. I mean, it's weird anyway. All kinds of weird dietary laws. and You got to pee so far out of camp and, you know, don't shave your head. And We don't need that. Throw all that away. And so many pastors and many people don't read, study, teach the Old Testament, it's like, it's nonsense. It's done away with. We don't like the God in the Old Testament anyway. He's kind of rude and he's old and he's grouchy. We like the God in the New Testament. He's nice. He's in a good mood. He smiles. We like that God. And, and it's this dichotomy that does not exist. What other people do 
is they embrace the, the Old Testament. Some people way too far embrace it and become legalists and add Jesus to all of it and, and call it Christianity with rules and regulations. And, and, and we're going to be burdened down with all this stuff, but we love Jesus. And that's foolishness as well. What others do is they take the Old Testament and they say, Oh man, the Old Testament's cool. I like the stories. It's like a kid's book. And, and the Old Testament simply just becomes an illustration book for the New Testament. Isn't that cute? Nice little stories, nice little illustrations for the New Testament. And all of those things are totally missing the point. And that's why stories like David and Goliath, who have made some men famous, they've built careers off of writing books and teaching on David and Goliath. And isn't David cool? And just go out and kill the giants in your life. And victory over the giants, defeating the giants. I mean, there are millions of sermons and books written just about that. And the end result is, go be David and kill your Goliath. You got that debt, go kill it. You got that marriage, go kill it. And it's, it's, it makes a phenomenal sermon. I mean, I could preach it right now. It's awesome. And there's part of that that's there, that's true. There's a moral indicative that is true there, that, that we ought to be a part of and we ought to embrace. But if that's the end of it, we are missing the point. Absolutely missing the point. Because the point of it is, there's one greater than David, who would come in the line and the lineage of David, who would defeat the greatest giant, the giant of sin and death. And if we don't get it, we don't get anything. You see, what we have to do is we have to understand the gospel. And we take the gospel, and then we go back to Genesis, to Malachi, with that understanding. And all of a sudden, stuff's just popping off the page because the gospel is there and we take it all the way through with the beginning point of understanding the gospel see we don't start in genesis and 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 hope that somewhere along the line it's going to start to make sense and it's going to find its fulfillment no you start with the fulfillment then you go back And you interpret everything in light of that. And only you and I have had that opportunity. John the Baptist didn't get to do that. And that's why those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, after Jesus' resurrection, who were clueless. They didn't even know they were talking to Jesus. Absolutely clueless. Walking along the road, Jesus like, hey, what's going on? What do you mean what's going on? Our rabbi, our teacher, our friend, the Messiah, at least we thought he was the Messiah, they murdered him. Really? The guy you're talking about, that's me. And let me give you a Bible study. I want to take you through the whole Testament. Those scrolls you've been reading your whole life, man, I got something for you. You want to talk about a sermon series I'd like to have. How about that? Jesus took them all the way through, showing himself in every page of the Old Testament. That's why Jesus said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have life, but they are they which testify of me. The entire Bible is about Jesus. It's not two different stories. It's not two different gods. It it isn't that God was taken by surprise, that he created Adam and Eve, and then a couple pages in, they screwed everything up, and then God's like, oh, man, I knew it. I knew you guys would mess it up. What are we going to do now? Gosh. Jesus, are you busy? 
You want to you do something here? From the very foundations of the world, this was planned by the sovereignty and the providence of God. And that ought to bring comfort to you in whatever you're going through. Nothing takes God by surprise. Don't get freaked out by all these bloggers that are just on a paranoid conspiracy hunt. Just don't even read it. When you get the email, just delete it. Add cinder to spam. It's garbage. God is not paranoid. Did you ever see Jesus paranoid? Even when they were taking him to the cross, he wasn't paranoid. What makes us think that we ought to be paranoid? You see any conspiracy theory about Jesus? There was conspiracies going on. If if you want to conspire, they conspired against Jesus. He wasn't that worried about it. Why are we so freaked out by stuff? I mean, the evangelical Christian church and Fox News has Barack Obama as the Antichrist. Hey, if he is, he is. I don't think that he is for a number of different reasons. But are, are, we, are we serious? Are we just going to run around in a state of paranoia when we have the key that unlocks the mysteries of life? Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. I, I hope you know that. I hope that makes you fall in love with your Bible all over again. Scene two, Jesus is invited to a Pharisee by the name of Simon's house. He's asked to eat with him. And in this section, we see that Jesus is the Redeemer. He's not only God's plan of redemption, but he is the Redeemer. He's your Redeemer. This is very personal. So he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner. Now, the text doesn't say what exactly she was, but I've got a feeling she wasn't a liar. I got a feeling she wasn't a gossip. I got a feeling she wasn't a petty thief. Otherwise, Simon would have been putting all of his stuff in the back bedroom. You know, I, I, I think that it's kind of clear the insinuation is that she was a loose woman. She was possibly a prostitute. And she comes into Simon's house. Now, you might be thinking, what is she doing? Why is she invited here? And it was kind of typical in that day, in that culture, where a rich, wealthy, prominent individual in the community would open his home begrudgingly to look good. It was kind of a welfare system. They could come in, they could take some food, and then they would leave quietly. That's not what this lady does, though. She comes in. She knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house. So she's come here for the express purpose to see Jesus. And she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. And she stood at his feet behind him weeping. Now remember that they didn't sit at dining room tables. They sat at tables that were very low to the ground, probably like six inches off the ground. They would have been reclining. Jesus was probably feet toward the wall, facing out this way. She comes up from behind him, standing at his feet, and she begins to weep. She begins to sob. Obviously, she's encountered Jesus previous to this. Obviously, something has happened with this woman. Jesus has touched her in a, in a very real way. And she's coming to offer worship to him. It goes beyond weeping. She gets down on her hands and knees. And she begins to wash his feet with her tears. Which again wouldn't be completely abnormal to do in that culture. To wash somebody's feet. That was normal. Your feet got dirty as you walked on the dusty streets. But the way that she does it is abnormal. 
Washing feet was the lowest job for the lowest servant. And she doesn't care about that. And she doesn't even use water. She's using her tears. She's wiping his feet with her hair. Now, ladies, you don't like your hair to be messed up. You don't even leave your bedroom with your hair messed up. Picture this lady. If she had mascara, which I doubt she did. I don't think Revlon was a company yet. But if she had mascara, it would be running down her face. Her hair is a mess. She's made a fool out of herself, but she doesn't care. Not to mention, she's really not welcomed in this house to begin with. She begins kissing his feet, anointing his feet with oil, a very costly, expensive oil. In fact, in another story that isn't a parallel of this, but it's a similar story, we're told that that alabaster flask of oil was worth about a year's wages. So this was very costly. Now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him for she is a sinner. So Simon's thinking to himself, if Jesus was really what he says he is, if he was this powerful prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is and he would be shooing her off like a mosquito. What is he thinking? This is making him look bad. The thing is, Jesus did know who she was. And he was accepting her offer of worship. Jesus answered and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. So you can picture Simon kind of being arrested out of his judgmental attitude toward Jesus. Oh, oh, yeah, what is it? There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, or 500 days wages, and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who forgave, whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, your house. You gave me no water for my feet, which would have been customary. It's a polite thing to do. Just like when someone comes to your house, you offer them something to drink. It's just the polite thing to do. I came to your house. You didn't offer to wash my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. Now, again, this doesn't resonate with us because if you come to my house, you're not getting a kiss. Probably not in this lifetime. But in that culture, it was very normal. Kiss on one cheek, kiss on the other. I mean, it was just a part of life. And it's still a part of that whole Middle Eastern, Mediterranean culture. You've seen how Italians and Greeks interact with each other. They don't understand space like we good Americans of white European descent do. They don't get it makes me uncomfortable. It's like, look, my dad kissed me once, I think. And I don't remember it, but I'm sure he did. And I don't like that, so just stay away. But it was normal in that culture. And Jesus said, you didn't even do that. You didn't even welcome me. This lady's been kissing my feet for an hour. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. 
Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus is the redeemer. He's your redeemer. He's my redeemer. He's this woman's redeemer. Jesus forgives sins. The word forgive means to send away, to let go, to dismiss. And that's what Jesus did with our sin. The Bible says he's cast it as far as the east is from the west, never to be retrieved. We owed a massive debt that could never be repaid. Jesus illustrates that. Who would forgive more? Well, the one that's been forgiven more. Not that there's different levels of sin, but there's different realizations of your sin. And the one that realizes that they've been forgiven more, they love more. On Wednesday nights, we've been going through the Dave Ramsey series. He's been teaching us how to get out of debt financially. A great thing. Our country is in the economic situation that it's in because of our personal debt. We are just a microcosm of the government. We spend money that we don't have. That's great. It's awesome. Getting out of debt is a phenomenal thing. And they show videos of a lady just jumping up and down. I mean, little did she know she has like a 38-inch vertical. There's some guy, you know, and, and I mean, if he saw the video, apparently they don't let them see it before they produce it. Because if he saw it, he's not letting that get out. I mean, he is just blubbering all over. Oh, I'm so excited about it. And just the enthusiasm to be out of debt financially. It's great. It's awesome. We all ought to do that. We all ought to want to be out of debt. There's nothing wrong with that. The debt snowball. Pay it off. Get rid of it. Yes. But when was the last time we were so stoked about the debt that we've been forgiven spiritually? You see, you can pay off student loans. You can pay off that visa. You'll pay off your house eventually. You can do those things if you try hard enough and if you work hard enough. Dave Ramsey proves you can do it on your own. You don't even need the power of the Holy Spirit. You can do it on your own. But you are never going to pay off your spiritual debt. You could try and try to be a good person, to do good things. And some of you are in that place and you'll never pay it off, ever. And he wiped it clean. When was the last time we got stoked about that? He's our redeemer. And see, what these people illustrate for us is the two ways that people rebel against God and why we need a redeemer. You've got Simon, who is the moral man, the good guy. And you've got the prostitute, who is the rebel, who is the one that everybody says, she needs to get saved. She needs to find religion. You've got Simon, who everybody pretty much just leaves alone. In fact, he can come to the church and assimilate right in, and we don't even share the gospel with him because we think he's already saved. Why? Because we have put morals ahead of God's grace. And we have made moralistic living the litmus test for what it means to be a Christian. You don't believe me? Just go to the Christian bookstore. Just read Christian books. Listen to pastors preach the Bible. It's nothing but a bunch of morals. I can get that anywhere. I can go over to the Mormon church and get morals. I can go down to the synagogue, although we don't have one here. I can go to the synagogue and I can get morals. I can turn on Oprah or get her magazine with her on the front of it in yet another outfit. She's the most egotistical woman on the planet. I don't know if you know that or not, but how you can have a magazine and be the only person ever on the cover, 
That's weird. That's real weird. But that's a different story. (laughs) I can turn on Oprah and get morals. I can go lots of places and get morals. And have you ever heard somebody say something like, how can that guy be so good and he's not a Christian? Ooh, right there. Misconception number one. There's lots of good people. Simon was a good person. That's just another way to rebel against God. It's another way to say, God, I don't need you. I can do this on my own. So don't be put off by good people that don't know Jesus. They're just as rebellious as the prostitute. It's just a different way of going about your rebellion. It's just like the elder brother and the prodigal son. Everybody always piles on the prodigal son. But the elder brother was just as much of a rebel as the younger brother. They just went about it in different ways. And so don't be put off by good people. They need Jesus. You need to preach the gospel to them. You guys, the gospel is not about morals. It's not about living up to a certain standard. That's not the gospel. And if you didn't know that, please have God absolutely rearrange and revolutionize your concept of the gospel. It's not about moral living. Fruit will come. Fruit will be born. But it will be a natural byproduct of what he's already done for you. Jesus is the redeemer. He's the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. He's your personal redeemer. What does that mean? What's the response? Because we're conditioned for a response. It's just like when you're in the store and you have eye contact with a complete stranger. What's the American response? Unless you're an absolute jerk. What's the American response? To smile. You smile. It's just part of the way we do things. You don't know that person, but it's just, hello, hi. You're a human, I'm a human, it's good to see you. You just grabbed that last pair of jeans that I wanted, but thank you. It's how we're conditioned. That's how we live. It's a response. There's lots of responses. When somebody does something for you, you say, thank you. We teach our kids. My son is almost five, he still doesn't get it. Say, what are you supposed to say? Please? No, you were supposed to say that before. You didn't say that either. Please is before. Thank you is after. But there's things that we do. There's responses that we have. And what's the response to this? Do I start paying Jesus back a little at a time? Amortized over a certain amount of time with a 3.9% APR? Be a good APR. We can't pay him back. There's no way we can pay him back. So what's our response? Our response is worship. That's our response. Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is your reasonable act of worship. To surrender your life. To say, Jesus, here I am. And that's what this woman does. Simon doesn't because he's clueless. He thinks he's a good guy. And he's just sitting there judging Jesus. An idiot. If he were more like me, he'd kick this woman out. That's what God would do. God's sitting there. Worship. That's the proper response. This woman's worship was genuine. It's absolutely genuine. She didn't have to sing the same trite phrase 300 times to get into the mood for worship. By the way, that's not Christianity, that's Buddhism. Where we thought that's cool to say the same thing over and over until I'm so delirious that I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. You might as well take a hit of acid. That's all that is. It's like a drug. You didn't have to do that. She doesn't have to have her emotions stirred with the lights low and candles lit, which we love to do. She didn't have to have that. 
She doesn't have to have a band. The ambiance doesn't have to be right. She doesn't have to have incense wafting through the room. Her, her worship is genuine. Genuine as it gets. It's authentic. It comes from her heart. Nobody had to drum it up. Nobody had to get her in the mood. I got to get in the mood for worship. Really? Get in the mood for other things. I don't know about worship. Her, her worship was humble. I mean, as I talked about, she just lays out hair a mess, tears flowing, kissing his feet, making a fool out of herself. Her worship was humble. She didn't care what other people thought. She didn't care what other people said. Her worship was sacrificial. She broke probably the most costly thing she had, the most valuable possession that she owned. This wasn't a wealthy woman. She was poor. How do I know she's poor? Because she's coming to Simon's house, not welcome to eat. She's, she's poor. And she gives Jesus worship that costs her something. I want to ask you a question. When was the last time you gave Jesus worship that cost you something? And I don't mean a dollar out of a thousand. That's not a sacrifice because I've still got 999. I mean that truly, really cost you something. A sacrifice. Something that just puts you out of your comfort zone. My mom used to do this every year. Every Thanksgiving, Christmas, she would always bring some marginalized person over to our house for dinner and, or in, in, and for the meal. And often I had to go pick them up. So I remember just several times going and picking these people up in just shacks or out on the railroad tracks. Like, Mom, where did you meet this person? Where? How do you come across these people, you know? And every year, without fail. And then Andrew and I got married, and I, I would tell her, I'm like, look, I don't know who's going to be at my mom's house, my mom and dad's house. It's probably going to be some weirdo from the church. I guarantee it, okay? They're going to corner you. They're, they're, gonna, they're close talkers. They're marginalized people. They're, you're about to go in the bathroom, and they corner you, and they talk for an hour while you're hopping up and down. They don't care. They're telling you their life story, and you're like, who are you? And I remember telling my mom, like, Mom, this Thanksgiving, this Christmas, can we just have the family? No weirdos. Put a sign on the door. No weirdos allowed. You know, Ryan, I, I think that Jesus would invite the weirdos. Okay. All right. Another year, another weirdo. Every year, the marginalized people, that's my mom's heart. That costs you something. It costs me dearly every year. But I don't get any rewards because I don't like it. No, but seriously, it's pretty phenomenal. When our worship costs us something, and you know when it does. When it costs you your time and your convenience, and it costs you money. Her worship was also grateful. That's where it all stemmed from. She had had an encounter with Jesus. He had obviously done a radical work in her life. Maybe he healed her. Maybe he healed her son. Maybe he provided food for her that she didn't have. There was some radical experience that this woman had. She felt loved and accepted like she had never felt before. And she came with thanksgiving to offer worship to Jesus. You know what, you guys? That's why complaining and moaning and pissing and griping has no place in the life of the Christian. Now, we all do it. And God convicts us of it. And sometimes it takes like three or four days. And you realize, you know what? I've been doing nothing but complaining for like the last week. 
I've been doing nothing but just moaning and groaning and griping. You guys, don't get involved in that at work. It will be the quickest way to ruin your witness. And it will also be the quickest way to absolutely revolutionize your workplace. Because they're going to ask you, hey, how come you don't complain? And there's an opportunity. Well, I'd really like to, number one, because I don't like it any more than you did. I don't like the way we get treated. I don't like the hours. I don't like the fact that our hours are cut. I don't like our pay. Whatever it is that everybody's complaining about. You can say that. I don't like it either. But I know that I have a hope way beyond this place. It's phenomenal. It's, it's the hope that Jesus, my, my Redeemer, gives me. And I don't have to work for it or anything. And so it's rather disingenuous for me to complain about this when I have a phenomenal future ahead of me. You look at the reaction after that. What do you, what do you say to that? That'll make an impact. That's worship, you guys. That's worship. It's not just what we do here. It's what you do when you leave those doors right now. That's worship because you understand who Jesus is. You have the answer to the question, and it changes everything. Let's stand and worship. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.